here I am. That's promised. Hey, how y'all enjoying? You can open up to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll be there in just a moment. I love the uh, winter advance from the standpoint of one of our elders was right there, Alex, serving up some food and with the team, Tommy and the others. I love the fact that uh, Mike Sign has been, you know, so involved with the youth, has, with his son Nathan, we're teaching alongside of Ian and Eric. It's awesome to see the body come together and um, spend a weekend together. You know, we've looked at the discipleship process for a number of weeks, the five stages of spiritual growth. We, this morning, we're going to follow up to last week of the spheres of the disciple's life, and namely God's family or the church. You know, in North America now, um, Christians are attending church on an average of 1.6 times per month. So I'm glad that so many of you here are above average. Makes me happy. We all live busy lives, right? But if we're too busy to gather corporately to worship, if we're too busy to be in community, we're really too busy. When the church was founded, what you find in Acts chapter 2 was a continual devotion to the apostles' teaching. You see them there devoted to fellowship, to prayer, to the breaking of bread. And there's a spirit of awe upon the church, this spontaneous joy this unrestrained praise. The Father was being exalted and Jesus was being lifted up and the Spirit was bringing freedom, release to the captives. So I want to give you a little bit of background now as to the body, as to what the body of Jesus really is. So just track with me for a couple moments and we'll work our way into Ephesians. When Jesus came to earth, he came in a body. We call that the incarnation. God becoming flesh. The incarnation is God identifying with us in our humanity. Just as we are human, made in God's image, and we have human experiences, I'm learning it's okay to be human. Jesus became human and had many human experiences. A friend of mine, when he was younger, he loved to work with his dad. His dad was a construction worker. So he go to work with his dad. He got a pair of steel-toed shoes. He wore a pair of blue jeans and a white shirt. He had a hard hat, and they would work together, he and his dad. His dad carried a thermos, and he carried a thermos. His dad carried a lunchbox. He carried a lunchbox. And they both had their respective set of tools. Now, my friend's father could have done all the work by himself. In fact, for a while, it would have seemed easier if the father had done all the work by himself. But he took his son to work with him, not only to give him a trade to make a living with, provide for his family, but also that the dad could know the son better. God is a father. And ministry, which every believer does, is like going to work, being with your dad. So let's go back to Jesus. Jesus was born into a body. Isaiah tells us that his body had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. That means that though Jesus was king, he was not robed with royal robes. He was, looked like an ordinary person. The truth is that Jesus had an earthly father whose name was, thank you, Joseph. And Joseph was a carpenter. And uh, from his earliest days, Jesus would have worked side by side with his father doing carpentry. 
The majority of Jesus' life then was spent as a carpenter, glorifying God and serving people by working with his dad, Joseph. But when Jesus was 12, a very significant thing happened. He got left behind in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. And they asked him, you know, what are you up to? And Jesus said, I must be about my father's business. I have a friend of mine who's in D.C., and he pastors a church entitled About My Father's Business. He works in Northeast, and there's a lot of poor people there, and he ministers to the poor and to the addicted, preaching the gospel of Jesus to set them free. You see, Jesus was about his father's business. He knew the father intimately, listening to his voice and following his commands. With his feet, he carried the gospel from town to town. With his hands, he touched the poor and the blind and the lepers. With his eyes, he saw people's true condition, and he felt compassion for them. Yesterday, I turned on the television about 1 o'clock, and there was the Paralympics. Maybe you saw some of that. There in Sochi was the U.S. team competing against Russia. And most of these were veterans who had lost a limb and now had learned to skate and be on these um, instruments to skate on the ice. And I watched about five minutes of it, and about four minutes of it, I just wept. Something just stirred me, just moved me deep down inside. And I told Debbie about this. I said, you know, I just felt so moved to watch these athletes compete, you know, racing on the ice, given the fact they've had so much to overcome. You see, when I began my own recovery, I went to a place, and there on the wall was some athletes in a race on wheelchairs. And I thought of all they had to overcome, <laughs> you know, an amputation from a war, and now to um, be able to race in a wheelchair or to be on the ice, you know, competing in the Olympics, something just got moved inside of me. I know that someday God's going to use me to have a ministry with people who have suffered with post-traumatic stress. I still feel as if that's an assignment God has for me. And with his mouth, Jesus spoke with authority. And this is where the gospel comes in. When Jesus died, Jesus died in his body. They crucified him upon a tree. The Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. It's called the great exchange, whereby when we believe, our sins are transferred to Jesus, and his righteousness is transferred to us. Well, it's on that cross that he died in his body. And then they took him down from the cross in his body, and they laid him in a tomb. But on the third day, they came to anoint his body. I kind of have a belief about the resurrection, you know. I believe the guys did the best they could, but they hurried up. But the women watched them, and they said, we can do this better. And so they spent their Saturday gathering uh, spices, and they went on Sunday morning to anoint the body of Jesus. But he wasn't there. His body had risen in a glorified state. And for 40 days, Jesus appeared in his body unto his disciples. And then he ascended bodily to heaven, where he sits at the right hand of God. 
And there he's engaged in ministry, a ministry of interceding for each one of you. You see, he's still praying for his church. He prayed on earth for us to become one. And I believe he still prays that prayer in heaven for his church to be unified. And then he said to his disciples, he said to them, it's to your advantage if I go away. The disciples must have wondered, why would this be to our advantage? We see Jesus could only minister in one body, in one place, while he was here upon this earth. But if he went away and he sent his spirit to occupy his body, then he could minister worldwide through his body of believers. You see, Jesus trained up his 12, and then he commanded them to make disciples. He said, Father, I have glorified you by completing the work you gave me to do. You see, Jesus had preached and taught. Jesus had healed, but he also made disciples. And now through the Holy Spirit, God empowers us with gifts and ministries to do our Father's business. So with our feet, we can carry this gospel of the good news from town to town. And with our hands, we can touch people in the very name of Jesus. And with our eyes, we can see people in their true condition and feel compassion for them. And with our lips, we can speak with authority the very words of Jesus Christ. Practically then, if you're a believer, you've been given the Holy Spirit. You are the body of Christ. You have been gifted by God. You have been chosen by God. And the scripture would bear out the necessity of every person in the church being like a part of the human body, connected, interconnected, interdependent upon one another. You see, there are no unnecessary parts to the human body. Just look at yourself and say, there's no unnecessary parts. Okay, there are no unnecessary parts. Let me tell you, every part of you is important. Just as there are no unnecessary parts of Christ's body, we are his body. We are his workmanship. To say that someone is his workmanship is to say that he has done his very best work. You look at an artist's workmanship, his masterpiece, you say he's done his very best work, her very best work. And so God has made you a piece of work. Now you can look at your neighbor and say, that's a piece of work. <laughs> All right. So let's look together at Ephesians chapter 4, because the emphasis this morning is on the unity of Christ's body. I want to drill that home to you, that we are called to unity. I would say that we're living now in a time of collaboration and cooperation. I believe the unity of the body is being evident now in our city. I'm part of something called the Church of the City. Several pastors getting together talking about how we can cooperate, how we can collaborate for the work of the gospel. When I was over in Central African Republic in Bangui, I sat at the table with Wycliffe Bible translators, and they were there translating dialects that had never been translated into the written word so they could read the Bible for themselves. I was sitting with um, people from Doctors Without Borders who were ministering to the sick in remote places. You see, what was happening was there was a partnership, a collaboration, a cooperation 
among like-minded people for the kingdom's sake. Here in our own city, we see ministries that come together, like the rescue mission, like the CareNet Pregnancy Center, where Christians from all different churches get together to support and work side by side. Now, in this section, Paul identifies himself in Ephesians chapter 4 as a prisoner for the Lord. Notice that Paul, when he was chosen, God said, this is how much you're going to have to suffer for me. Sometimes being a disciple involves a cost, and Paul was willing to pay that cost. Sometimes it has a price, and he was willing to pay that price. Notice he was not calling himself a prisoner of Rome or a prisoner of Caesar, but he calls himself a prisoner for the Lord. You see, Paul, as he writes this letter, the Roman Empire is experiencing a time of corruption. There's civil unrest. The Roman legions were ready to march and squash whatever rebellion there was in their kingdom. And Paul himself was a prisoner for the Lord in the city of Rome. But he writes this word to Christians to call them to action. This is what he says. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. You see, when Jesus lived upon this earth, he called people to follow him. And he's still calling people to follow him. He calls us out of this world. He calls us into a relationship with him. He calls us his ecclesia, his church. We are the church of Jesus Christ. And we've been called to live a holy life. We've been called to live a loving life. We've been called to live a merciful life, showing mercy to people. We've been called to live a forgiving life, not holding grudges, but releasing in the name of Jesus Christ. He says, live a life worthy of the calling. You know, one of the aspects of the early church was when they gathered together in the temple courts, and then they met in their homes, and they gathered together fellowshipping, breaking bread. Wouldn't it be a beautiful thing, even today, when you gather together with your friends, with your family, that you would remember the broken body of Jesus Christ with the bread you partake? As you break bread with one another, giving thanks and remembering that body that was broken for you. As you partake of the cup, you remember the blood that was shed, the new covenant, and do this in remembrance of him. What the practice of the early church was, was they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. It was a beautiful thing. And Paul says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. He calls us out of bondage and slavery. He calls us into freedom. He calls us out of darkness. He calls us into light. He calls us out of hatred and prejudice. And he calls us to love. You see, he's called us to a higher standard. But in order to live that out, there's a number of virtues that need to be characterized by the believer. You see, the foundation of ministry is always character. Look at verse number two. He says, I want you to be four things. I want you to be completely humble and gentle. I want you to be patient and bear with one another in love. 
It's like this, brothers and sisters. We have worn a garment for most of our days. Let's call the garment pride. But we have to take off that garment of pride and be clothed with a new garment, the garment of humility. What Paul is calling us to do then is to live our lives with humility. When we are filled with pride, there are two paths. One is that we can either humble ourselves or we can be humbled. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. There was a boxer of my generation, his name was Muhammad Ali. He said, dance like a butterfly, sting like a bee. Nobody can beat the mighty Ali, unless your name is Joe Frazier or George Foreman. You see, pride makes us think that rules are made for other people, not for me. Pride makes us think we can escape the consequences of our own actions. Humility, what is humility? Humility is not to think less of yourself. That would be false humility. Humility is to think of yourself progressively less. Pride blocks God's grace in your life. And we all need God's grace. He gives grace to the humble. What does it mean to be a humble person? We receive God's grace simply by admitting we need it. If you need God's grace this morning, you can say, God, would you shower your grace into my life? And God lavishly gives us the grace we need. For the common things, there's common grace. For the uncommon things, there's uncommon grace. You see, God loves to give grace to his children, to the ones that are humble. So how do you develop humility? First of all, by admitting your own weaknesses. We in our pride love to hide. We don't like to admit our real issues, our real problems, our real questions. We hide and don't admit the truth about ourselves. We develop humility by being patient with other people's weaknesses. We become humble by being open to correction. We become humble by being open to being guided. We become humble by putting the spotlight onto other people. You see, the first and cardinal virtue to which God calls us to live a worthy life is, first of all, humility. Secondly, he calls us to be gentle or meek. Now, meekness is not weakness. Jesus said, blessed are the meek. Meekness means strength under control. A meek horse has been broken, its will has been broken, subjected to the master, yet that horse is still powerful and strong, but its independent will to act on its own has become broken. It's become a meek horse. To be meek is to be mild-mannered and self-controlled, not vengeful or vindictive. These two words, meekness and humility, were words the Greeks had no words for. The first time these words ever appear is in the New Testament when God began to describe virtues that characterize his followers. You see, Jesus, he said to us, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
And then he described his character. He said, for I am gentle and humble at heart. You see, to be transformed by Jesus as one of his disciples is to take on his very character of humility and meekness. Not long ago, I was humbled. <laughs> I was debating whether to tell you this story or not because it really makes me look bad. But uh, you know, I have a dog, Schnick, who's getting older day by day. He's 12 now. He's losing his teeth. And uh, he takes glucosamine to help him with his joints. And so Schnick, sometimes on our walks together, sometimes he will do his business and sometimes he won't. But this was a very cold day. And I was walking my dog outside in a very precarious spot where traffic often comes. And Schnick did a little business. And I decided just to let it go. Now, Debbie had always said to me, Art, do you have your bag? And then she said, you know, neighbors do look outside their doors, outside their windows. But I said, no, nobody ever looks outside. It was a cold day anyway. And so Schnick did a little something, and I didn't pick it up. And one of the neighbors popped out and said, pick up your poop. Now I had a choice to make as to whether I would let myself be humbled or ignore my neighbor. So I said, I will. And I got my little bag out and I did my thing with Schnick. But I still find that a very humbling experience. Well, first of all, what I do with Schnick is humbling. And then being humbled by my neighbor is even more humbling. <laughs> I don't know if you ever battle with your own pride, being stubborn being resistant, being sort of like awful when somebody corrects you, being full of yourself. You see, you can't be full of yourself and full of the Holy Spirit. God always wants us to empty ourselves of our pride. And he says, be patient. Some here are going through a season in your life where God's cultivating patience, taking care of a special needs child, waiting for a pregnancy to happen, taking care of an elderly um, parent, hearing the same stories over and over again, <laughs> developing patience. And then he says, bearing with one another in love. The fourth quality, the fourth virtue, is that of bearing with each other in love. You know, there was a term, eros, which essentially was self-love. It cares for others only because they can give something to us. And then there was a term phileo, meaning a reciprocal love. I'll give as long as I receive back from you. But the term that Paul uses here is the term agape love, which means an unconditional, selfless, sacrificial love. You see, how then do we live a life that is worthy of being called a disciple? It is God cultivating these virtues in our life. The ultimate outcome of humility and gentleness, and patience, and forbearance and love is what's described in verse 3 of the unity of the Spirit. He says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. The preservation of the unity of the Spirit should be the diligent concern of every believer. He's talking about here the fact of what Jesus Christ is praying for, Jesus is praying that his body may be one, that those who believe may be one, that we may come to complete unity, that the world may know that Jesus Christ was sent. 
to the degree that we manifest this unity and preserve this unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, to that degree, God is being glorified and Jesus' prayer is being answered. There are now denominations, but denominations cannot tear us apart. There is now geography, but the geography cannot separate us. There are ethnic differences, but they cannot divide. There are economic classes, but they cannot make one better or one lesser. For by one spirit, we were baptized into one body, whether we were Jews or Gentiles, whether we were slave or free. You see, the church is not the church of the Jews or the church of the Gentiles. The church is one body. And the church is not that of the upper class and lower class. The church is one body. And the church is not that of the North American church or the South American church or the African church or the Asian church or the European church. The church is one body. You see, what God has established is something that is indissolvable, something that is incomprehensible, um, that two very radically different kinds of people can come together and become one body of believers. So he says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bonds of peace. Now, it's naive to say, isn't it naive to say that there will never be differences among us? Do you ever have differences with your wife? Wow, you guys are really asleep. Okay, do you ever have differences with your husband? Do you ever have differences with any other Christian? You ever see things differently? The truth is we have very different perspectives, right? We are going to disagree, but we can have disagreements and not be disagreeable by valuing each other's perspective by taking the time to listen. Most people feel valued when you take the time to listen to them. Imagine if you took the time to listen to somebody with humility. You are my brother. You matter to me. I want to hear your perspective, your point of view. You are my sister. I know I have offended you. Would you tell me what I have done? Imagine if we were gentle, mild-mannered, self-controlled, not vindictive, not vengeful. The Scripture says, you who are spiritual, if your brother is caught in a trespass, restore him with a spirit of gentleness. You are my brother. You said you want to be accountable to me. I I know that you matter to me, but there's something I need to talk to you about. To come with a spirit of gentleness, to come with the attitude that I want to see you restored to God. I want to see our relationship restored. Imagine if our witness was done with gentleness. Peter says, sanctify Christ in your heart, being ready to make a defense of the hope that lies in you, yet with gentleness. I was uh, traveling this week, and I was on an airplane. And the guy in front of me was from Russia, but he was bilingual, so he could speak both languages. And when we got ready to take off, there was a loud sort of noise. And he kind of got spooked by the noise. And so he asked the stewardess, what was that loud noise? And so she called the captain, and he reported back what the loud noise was all about. And then we got airborne. 
And the stewardess came around and said, what do you want? And he said, I want a shot of liquor. And then she said, what else do you want? He said, I want a second shot of liquor. And so this guy just throwing it down, you know, and just riding along. But I could tell he was deeply perturbed and agitated by the flight. So when we got down and, you know, began to collect our luggage, he was standing there and he was standing right beside me. He said, well, how did you enjoy the flight? And I, I said, well, I thought it was a pretty nice flight. He said, I hated the flight. Remember that loud noise? And then I tried to drink and the drinking didn't help. And then I started thinking about that plane that went down in the China Sea or the Indian Ocean. And I just was so rattled by that. And I said to him, I said, you know, there was a time when I was frightened by flight also. I don't really like heights. But I've learned that if I go down, I get to go up. Would you like to know why? And the guy said, yes. So about the next 15 minutes, we had a conversation about what it meant to go to heaven. And I thought, here was God preparing this opportunity for me, this, you know, divine appointment. And I had just, you know, didn't expect it at all. I thought, well, this guy, just ignore me. But he really wanted to converse about what my hope was. You see, God has orchestrated in your life all kinds of divine appointments wherein you can share your hope. But when you share your hope, share it with gentleness. When you correct your brother, your sister, do it with gentleness. Do it with humility. Be patient. Forbear with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. One of the amazing things now I see in our church is we're starting to get some traction as it pertains to discipleship. I hear of women's groups that are forming, men's groups that are for forming, people that are opening up their lives, becoming vulnerable to each other, not hiding anymore. And we really need to guard the unity of the Spirit through the very bonds of peace. Then he goes on to say seven different things in verses 4 through 6. Read them with me, if you would. There is one body and there is one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. How many think that God's trying to teach you there about oneness? Seven kinds of oneness. Verse 4 emphasizes the Spirit. Verses 5 emphasizes Jesus, the Lord. And verse 6 emphasizes the Father. He says in verse 4, there is only one body. Each member of the body is important. Each member of the body has been given gifts to be discovered and used. Our gifts are not to be played with. Our gifts are not weapons to fight with. Our gifts are tools to build with. You see, if the body will use their gifts, we will help people to mature. We will help them move beyond being infants tossed to and fro on the sea. We'll help them to take on the fullness of Christ. We'll take on the full knowledge of the Son of God. You see, the early church, there was divisions in the church. But what Paul is saying here is there is only one body that is empowered by one spirit. The prophet Zechariah was once confronted with a mountain that God said would become a plain. When Zechariah looked around to see how it would happen and what power would come to make this happen, God said, it's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord. 
The church of Jesus Christ has only one power to rely upon, the power of the Holy Spirit. You cannot live the Christian life apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. And we see this power demonstrated when people begin to pray in the Spirit. When they pray in the Spirit, things begin to happen. There was a man, his name was Peter. He was a leader of the church, and he was in prison. And the church began to pray earnestly in the Spirit. Now Peter was asleep. Peter was chained. Peter was behind bars. Peter was in prison. But when the church began to pray in the Spirit, Peter was awakened. And when the church began to pray, the chains fell off. And when the church began to pray, the door swung open. And when the church began to pray, he got released out of his prison. I want to tell you there's power in the Holy Spirit, and it is the only power the church can rely upon. It is what undergirds us. It is what empowers us. It's what infills us. It's the Spirit that breaks down the religious walls. You know, you know, you know what religion is? Religion is, here's the rules, keep the rules, but if you don't keep the rules, you get squashed. I want to tell you that Jesus came to establish a re relationship, not to build a religion. There is one body and one spirit, and there is one hope. Now, I've traveled to many places in the world, and I've spoken in many different countries, but there is one hope that is the anchor of our souls. Our hope is not in our Congress, in the laws they pass. Our hope is not in the White House, this administration or the next. Our hope is not in the stock market, the ups and downs therein. Our hope is not in our education. Our hope is not in our sports team, especially if you're a Redskin fan. But our hope is not in the things of this world. This world is not all there is. There is something better coming. The hope of a believer is the return of Jesus Christ. For someday, he's going to split open those skies. He's going to come on the clouds. And the archangel is going to shout. And, <laughs> and the trumpet's going to blow. And Jesus Christ is going to return for his church. And that is the hope of every believer. You see, you can put your hope in the stock market and be disappointed. You can put your hope in a person and be disappointed. But those who put their hope in the Lord will never, ever, ever be disappointed. There is one hope. And then he says in verse 5, there's one Lord. It kind of gets better. There is one Lord. Now, why doesn't he say there's one Savior? You see, if you're without the Lord, what you really need is a Savior. You need somebody to save you. You're lost, you're living in unbelief, you don't know your direction, you need somebody to save you. Why doesn't he say there's one Savior? Because when you confess Jesus as Lord, when you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you get a Savior, you see? And you need a Savior. To call Jesus Lord is to recognize him as the highest authority in the universe. I remember one time I was somewhere, and we were singing with a very diverse group, 
from all over the world, he is Lord. He is Lord. He is risen from the dead, and he is Lord. Every knee is going to bow, and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that's why they couldn't say Caesar is Lord, because Jesus is Lord. And there's one faith, right? Now, there's an entry to the faith by belief, by repentance. And there is a body of truth revealed about Jesus. And all true believers believe that the body of truth about Jesus, the one set of facts, the faith, is the truth of the Scriptures. And then he says, there's one Father who's over all things, in all things, through all things, speaking of his omnipotence and sovereignty and his presence, that the Father is in all things. You see, this is a statement of unity. It's a statement of who we are in Jesus Christ. Once you become a believer, these seven things become true for you. Now, we're going to do something a little different this morning. And you have to trust me on this one, okay? I'd like you all to stand, if you would, and to find around yourself two or three or four or five people. You don't even have to know them. And I'd like you to hold hands with them. Because I'm going to pray a prayer of blessing, of unity over you. I love you all getting together. It makes me happy. Now, I don't want you to close your eyes in this prayer. I want you to look at the people you're praying with, all right? Look eye to eye with them. That may be a little awkward for you at first. <laughs> Some of you all are really enjoying that part. But I want you to keep your eyes open in this prayer as I pray this prayer of blessing and unity over you. Okay, here we go. Father, we stand this morning in unity. We are one body with one spirit called to one hope. We are followers of one Lord, of one faith, baptized by one spirit. We are children of one God and Father who is over all, through all, and in all. We are bound together in love. I see the face of Jesus in the face of my brother and my sister. And when my brother or sister is in need, let them be honest and tell me their need. Help me to respond to them with compassion. And may your spirit prompt me to see this person's need. And when I am in need, let me be honest and not hide anything from my brother or my sister. Father, draw us together into fellowship, sharing the things we have in common. May we be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bonds of peace. Grant us the humility, the gentleness, the patience, and the love to live a life worthy of your calling. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.